morning. Um, as Pastor Eric said this last week, hopefully you read chapter one of the story. If you don't have a book, the story, they are in the lobby. They cost five dollars. There's also books for children. And you can purchase one. If you can't afford one, people have donated. So um, you can take a copy as well. All right. But the story, basically, we're in the middle of a series where we're going through the Bible, the whole Bible, to learn not just all the little individual stories, but the grand story of God and his people. And and the book, the story, well, it would be a lot if I said, okay, in the next eight months, you got to read all of this. That's a lot to read the whole Bible. So the story takes selections of the Bible and divides them into 31 chapters or 31 weeks. And it kind of highlights some of the main stories so we get the overall picture of the whole Bible. Does that make sense? All right. And last week, um, we covered Genesis 1. And we're going to be in Genesis 3 through 6 this Sunday. So please get out your real Bibles. Like, if you didn't bring one with you, grab one out from the basket and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. The reason we're going on this journey to really learn the whole story of the Bible and commit to reading it, not just coming to church on Sunday and hearing a sermon, but also for you guys to read it for yourself is because we believe that Scripture, the Bible, is in fact the Word of God. That God inspired humans to write His message so that we have God's message to us. Second Peter, uh, the Bible... Do we have these slides? There we go. Thank you. Um, Second Peter 1.20 says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit inspired human prophets to write down the words of God. The Bible says this again in 2 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed. That's why we call it the Word of God. It's God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in right living. That's what righteousness means. It just means right living. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good word. No matter what life throws at you, you'll be equipped for it. So we started last week in Genesis 1. And we learned about the power of God's Word. In Genesis 1, it records how the earth was in a state of darkness and chaos. It was formless and void of life. And every time God speaks, His Word transforms the chaos into order, goodness, and life. Every time. And God's Word still does that. It transforms chaos into order, goodness, and life. In Genesis 1 and 2, we also learn that we are made in the image of God, humankind is, which means that we're God's representatives here on earth. And as his representatives, when we speak his word, it has the same effect. Maybe not to the same degree of power, but it has the same effect. That when we speak God's word, it transforms chaos into order, goodness, and life. But as image bearers, 
When we ignore, neglect, say, and do the opposite of God's word, it has that effect on the earth also. That instead of the earth being increasingly transformed into order, goodness, and life, the earth starts to digress back into chaos and darkness and death. And that's what we're going to learn about today in chapters 3 through 6 of Genesis. Adam and Eve, they are living in a perfect paradise, right? The Garden of Eden. Um, there is no suffering, there's no death, even all the animals get along, they, they live in peace, they eat plants, there's an abundance of food for them. Um, God's given them the tree of life so that they can live eternally. He also gives them, there's this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right next to the tree of life. <laughs> They're like side by side in the garden. And he's like, eat from this tree so you'll live forever. Don't eat from this tree. Because if you eat from this tree, you'll die. We don't know why that tree was there. I don't know. Maybe it had like fruit that was good for birds, like the tree outside my kitchen window. But it's poisonous to human beings. The point is this. God knows how he created his creation. And he knows what causes his creation to thrive. And he knows what is bad for his creation and makes him sick. (laughs) And so he's like, don't eat from this tree. It's going to make you sick. You're going to die. But Adam and Eve doubt God's definition of what's good and bad. And I was reflecting on this this last week about how easily we doubt God's word. Um, myself included. I, I think of my life and I, I cannot name how many good gifts God has given me. Like I see God's goodness all the time, even as we look at the beauty outside the windows and Um, the turning of the leaves and things like that, and then the clothes that I have to wear. My daughter and I were talking about that (laughs) this morning, that we rarely go shopping, but we have people who just give us clothes, and we always have clothes to wear. And there's just all of these things, like God just over and over again, lots of good things. Anybody else? Like you just can look through your life and just see God has provided, and he's given you good blessing after good blessing, right? And then one bad thing happens, and what do we do? We're like, oh. we, we like get upset with God or we blame. We're like, God, do you even care about me? You know? And we begin to doubt. Or sometimes we see something we want that, you know, all the warning signs say it's not good for us. But we're like, I don't know. I think that'll be good. You know? And we just doubt God's word so easily. And I was wondering, like, why do I do that? And I think... One reason is because I'm impatient and like God's word has these promises and when they don't instantly come true, I start to doubt, right? Another reason is I think I'm just, you know, I'm a daughter of Adam and Eve and that's exactly what they did. For some reason, even though they're living in paradise, nothing has even gone wrong yet. They doubt that God knows what he's talking about when he says, this is good, this is bad. You see, the story of the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, I, I believe it actually happened. But it's also a great metaphor. It's this amazing metaphor of how God created the world. 
He knows what is good for the world. He knows what's good for us. He also knows what causes us to get sick and what causes things to break down. But we don't trust his judgment. We want to know for ourselves what is good and bad. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and bad. And so we take the knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. That's what this is a metaphor for. We're going to read about it right now. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 6. They're already looking at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? Genesis 3 verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree, the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, Where are you? Evil, it often looks so good at first, doesn't it? And we wonder if it's really bad from us. From the time we're like two years old, all of us have had these moments where we're told, don't do this. It's not good for you, right? And anyone with a two-year-old knows what happens next. <laughs> right? And we do this over and over our whole lives. We keep grabbing that knowledge of good and evil for ourselves. We want to decide ourselves. That's the crazy thing about humans. We're curious about evil. We don't believe it's really bad. And so we grab it and we take a bite of the apple and we always want to know what evil is until we've actually tasted it. And then we wish we had never had. Because there's consequences. Just like God said there would be. Who Go figure, right? And um, for Adam and Eve, the consequences... Some happen right away, and some don't, and that's true of us. Physical death doesn't happen right away, but immediately what happens? They feel shame, and they begin to hide from one another. They make coverings for for their bodies, and as husband and wife, they begin to hide things from each other. They also hide from God. So the first death is relational death. But physical death comes too. But God, great. God's grace comes too. And that's what I want to show you. We're going to skip some verses that were in your reading for this week that talk about all the consequences that they go through because of this. But I want to skip to the first physical death that happened. In verse 21, Genesis 3:21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Where did he get the skin from? An animal. An innocent animal. You see, the first sacrifice wasn't humans bringing offerings to appease God. The very first sacrifice was God actually sacrificing one of his creation for us. 
to cover our shame. To cover Adam and Eve so they could feel comfortable enough to be with one another again. God makes the first sacrifice. And it is a sign of the ultimate sacrifice that he is going to make for all of us. To cover all of our sin and shame. And to give us a new life and new relationships. I'm going to keep reading. Verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This kind of begs the question, all right, so now they rebelled, they decided we want to be our own judges of what's right and wrong, but why do they have to die for that? Like, why does God take away the tree of life? We're going to see exactly why as we read through the next couple chapters. Next verse, chapter 4, verse 1. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. He was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions, from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked on favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This passage always begs the question, why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? And um, the Israelites would have instantly known the answer to that question because they were much more familiar with the book of Leviticus than we are, and which talks about what are acceptable sacrifices. God does accept both grain and animal sacrifices, but we'll come back to why Abel's was more acceptable in a little bit. So God, he, he talks to Cain. He just doesn't give him a cold shoulder. He does talk to him and says, well, look, if you do what is right, you'll be accepted. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said to him, what have you done? Listen, your, brother blo- your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, Adam and Eve knew the knowledge of evil. One of their sons just killed his younger brother. And just think for a minute what it's like for Adam and Eve 
as they're crying over Abel's body, wishing they had never ate that fruit. One of the things we see as in this and as we keep reading is that sin has a deteriorating effect on the world and humanity. In the last chapter, Eve and Adam had to be tempted into sinning, right? They had to be lured, tempted into it. Cain doesn't even have to be tempted. This is only one generation later. His heart's already hard. God, God is actually trying to talk him out of sinning. That's how much humanity has deteriorated in just one generation. And as we keep reading, it keeps getting worse. You read through the rest of the chapter, and it, it kind of gives a genealogy through the line of Cain. By verse 19, we get to his great-great-great-grandson, Lamech. This is seven generations from Adam and Eve. And it says in verse 19 that Lamech, he starts collecting wives, like their property. He's the first man to do this. And it's a clear violation of God's command, what we see in Genesis 1 and 2, that God made man and woman equal. Adam says, she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's made of the same stuff I am. And God says, the two will become one flesh. No. Now, he's dominating over his wives. And then, that's, that's not the worst of it. He starts bragging about how he kills people. Verse 22, or I'm sorry, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. He's basically saying, I am 70 times the killer Cain was. Like, this is just horrible to be in a world where people are bragging about killing others like this. And there's a warning for us here who are parents. You know, that when we don't take God's word seriously and when we doubt it, what, what is our little small rebellions, like Adam and Eve, just saying, I don't know if God was telling us the truth or if he knows. I, I don't know. I think I'm going to try that out, but I don't think it looks so bad. Small rebellion becomes increasingly great with each generation, where it becomes like our kids end up doing things we could never even have imagined. But God remains gracious. God remains gracious. The very next verse, after hearing Lamech brag about his murdering, says this, verse 25, Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, evil, when it, it, there's just a little bit of it, it can look so good and appetizing. But when evil begins to spread and grow and dominate, it shows its true colors. And that's when people begin to see, oh, this really is bad. 
And that's when they begin to turn back to the Lord because they realize how good God is. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The next chapter, we chapter 4 is like Cain's genealogy, but chapter 5 is Seth's genealogy. And if you look at it, we're not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read some verses. So just look at the form of chapter 5. You'll see all these paragraphs, and they all have the exact same form. It's, it's going to say, so-and-so lived so many years, had a son. After his son, he lived another so many years. And then altogether, he lived 900 and some years, and then he died. That's every paragraph. So we start with Adam, and he has Seth. And then it says, altogether, Adam lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. Seth becomes the father of Enosh, I'm sorry, Enosh. And then verse 8, altogether, Seth lived a total of 912 years, and then he died. Enosh becomes the father of Kenan. And then verse 11, altogether, Enosh lived a total of 905 years, and then he died. When Kenan um, had lived 70 years, he became the father of Mahalalel. And then verse 14, altogether, Kenan lived a total of 910 years, and then he died. When the scripture repeats the same word or phrase over and over again, it's repeating it for emphasis. There's a reason I'm reading these verses to you. Mahalalel becomes the father of Jared. Altogether, verse 17, altogether, Mahalalel lived a total of 895 years, and then he died. Jared becomes the father of Enoch. Verse 20, altogether, Jared lived a total of 962 years, and then he died. Enoch becomes the father of Methuselah. This is interesting, because the form actually changes a little bit here. It says, after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God. It was like becoming a father helped him straighten himself out. Has that happened to anybody else? You become a parent? And suddenly you get a little more serious about your relationship with God. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years. That's a lot shorter. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. That's something. All right, Methuselah then becomes a father of Lamech. And verse 27, altogether Methuselah lived a total of 969 years and then he died. Lamech has a son, Noah. You've probably heard of Noah before. And at all, verse 31, altogether Lamech lived a total of 777 years and then he died. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Shem Ham and Japheth. Why does the Bible keep repeating this phrase over and over again? He lived 900 and some years and then he died. There are two points the Bible is trying to hit home. One, these people were not meant to die. Even without the tree of life, they're still living 900 plus years. Why? 
Because God did not create the human body originally just to deteriorate. There's no disease in his original creation. There's no toxic chemicals that cause cancer. There's no harmful foods. God created us to live. That's the point of emphasizing how long these people were living. But they die. Which is the second point. God's word is true. Once they had the knowledge of evil, they did begin to die. And it's this picture of God. He makes this beautiful creation. It is good. He loves it. He loves humanity. He puts us in charge of it. And then we just start to break it. And we start to hurt one another. And it all begins to break and fall apart. And it's just horrible. And God's like, what? And then he sees Enoch. This guy who's trying to live rightly, and he's like, I gotta save him. I can't let him die too. And he just snatches Enoch up. And he rescues Enoch from death, not just for Enoch's sake. He rescues Enoch as a sign for all of us that death is not his intention for us and that there is a life after this one. This is scripture's first sign with Enoch that God has another life for us. And that if we are willing, he will rescue us from death and take us to that next life. Why doesn't God just let us live eternally in this life? Why did he take away the access to the tree of life? I think it's because 900 years is a very long time to live with the knowledge of evil. 900 years is a very long time to watch humans hurt one another. That's a lot of heartbreak to experience. And hurt people hurt people. You know how many of us, we get hurt and then we lash out on somebody else. And it becomes a cycle of people getting hurt and then hurting others. And it's just this cycle that keeps continuing. And rather than letting us live eternally in this broken world with this cycle of people hurting one another, God devises a plan to bring us to a better world. We see it in the example of Enoch. He does this not only to save us, but also, because we are not the only ones who experience the heartbreak from this world. God experiences it too. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And that every inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Some of your translations will say his heart was grieved. The Lord was grieving. You see, God experiences the pain of this world too. And he comes to a point where he says, enough is enough. I've got to break the cycle. 
I can't let this pain and heartbreak go on forever. That's why in verse 3, he says this. The Lord said, my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days are going to be numbered to 120 years. And then we, and we see that after the flood, which is the very next thing that happens, humans' lifespans are changed. God sends a... Well, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's keep reading. Because even though God has had enough of the heartbreak and pain, he's still gracious. He's still gracious. Look what comes right after he says that he regrets making humanity. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully. I'm sorry, I skipped too many pages there. There we go. He walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. God had saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God told Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it in the inside with pitch inside and out. One of the things we see in scripture is that God redeems death as a way of ending the cycle of human pain and suffering. And this is really hard for us. Because we just don't think our sin is that bad. We think other people's sin is that bad. (laughs) But not ours. Like, how many times have you thought, like, God, why don't you just, like, get rid of all the human traffickers and child rapists and murderers and just get rid of all of those people so that the rest of us can live in peace, right? Like, well, that's the story of Noah and the ark. That's exactly what God does. He gets rid of all the wicked people. He literally washes the earth clean. And he starts over with just the good people. And what happens? Here we are today. The cycle just starts over again. In fact, it happened, it started over again almost instantly. After Noah and his family get off the ark, he plants a vineyard, gets drunk, is naked in his tent drunk. His son, Ham, walks in on him, walks out. Noah gets really ticked about it and curses his grandson, Canaan. Like, that even makes sense. But all of a sudden, like, family brokenness, domination, oppression, it starts all over again. And as we read through the Bible, it, it's something we just see and that we know. That we humans continually choose to taste evil. We don't trust what God says, or we don't even bother to listen, because we want to be the judge of what is right and wrong for ourselves. And so when something looks good, we just take it, without any idea what the repercussions are going to be 
for ourselves or other people. But God remains gracious. One of the reasons God allows wicked people to remain on the earth is because He's gracious. He doesn't want to keep wiping everybody out. He wants to save everyone. So he patiently waits for even the most wicked people to repent so he can save them. As we see from the very first couple, Adam and Eve, God sacrifices for us to cover our shame. And he devises a plan to rescue us from this broken world, just like he did with Enoch. And bring us into a perfect one. And that plan requires him to make the ultimate sacrifice. You see, God, his plan for breaking the cycle of human pain and suffering was to step into it. And God the Son became a human. And he stepped right into the middle of that cycle. And he himself became the victim of human violence. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did God not accept Cain's offering? Let's go back to that question. What are offerings? Offering sacrifices, it's our way of thanking God. It's our way of recognizing, God, you made the ultimate sacrifice. The Son of God died for us. So here's just my little offering back. That's what a sacrifice and offering is. Genesis 4. We're going to read this again. um, About Cain and versus Abel's offerings. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as a offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering. Now, look how it emphasizes what Abel brought. Fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Abel brought God his first and best. Abel had no guarantee that he would have more sheep to offer. He didn't know if more were going to be born or not. He sacrificed his first and best as an act of faith, knowing God was going to provide for him. Hebrews recognizes that Abel's sacrifice required faith. Hebrews 11.4, I think we have it. There we go. It says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commanded, commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. By faith, Abel still speaks, even though he's dead. Because he's not really dead, dead. There is a future life. Cain brought God, or Abel brought God his first and best, which required faith in God's goodness. Cain just brought some fruit in the course of time. Some leftovers that he knew he could afford to give up. And that's insulting to God. Because God doesn't give us his leftovers. God gave us his first and best. 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And when we respond to that by giving God our leftovers, it's insulting. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when Cain, even when Cain is insulting by just giving God some of his leftovers, God is still gracious. He doesn't accept it, but he's still gracious with Cain. He still says, Cain, look, if you do what's right, you're going to be accepted. And then Cain goes and murders his brother because he's jealous. And what does God do? He's like, Cain, where's your brother? You know, he's like gently approaching Cain, asking Cain to repent. Cain doesn't repent. God gives him a consequence, but God is still gracious. He protects Cain. If you keep reading the story, he puts a mark of protection on Cain so other people won't come and murder him and get vengeance. God remains gracious. So, my friends, the question I just have for you today is how do you respond to God's graciousness? Do you blame God for everything that's broken in this world? For that cycle of human hurt and pain and suffering? Do you respond to God's graciousness by continuing to be the judge for yourself? I'm going to judge for myself what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. Or do you respond to God's graciousness by trusting Him? By recognizing he's created everything, he knows how things best work, so I'm going to listen to his word. Do you trust him that death was never part of his plan for us? Do you trust him that when he says he's going to save you, he will? And that's really the rub. I think, because we all want to be saved. We all want God to make our life better. But we want to tell God how to save us. We still are clinging to that knowledge of good and evil, that we're like, God, this is the good way to save me. This is what you should do. And God, no, this is bad. Don't let this happen to me. This is not what's good for me. We're still clinging to that knowledge of good and evil. And God, he's just like, no, you don't have the knowledge of good and evil. You confuse good and bad all the freaking time. Only I know what is truly good and bad. Only I, God, knows all the long-term ramifications of how things are going to turn out. And so I'm going to choose To save you in the very best way. The way that is good. I encourage you to have faith like Abel. That even when God requires you to give up your first, your best. That you still trust him. In the midst of that loss. That he's going to provide you with something even greater. I encourage you to trust him, that it is his desire to save you and your loved ones for a better life. 
if you will follow him and if you'll let him. God is gracious. He loves us far more than we deserve. So let's trust in his word and learn it. So we know from him, not from ourselves, but from him, what is truly good and evil. Would you join me in praying? God, we are um, stubborn and, and proud people. And, and we like... God, I, I'm, I'm glad, I'm grateful that you give us minds. That we can judge and decide things. I'm glad you give us free will that we can decide things. God, God I just pray that instead of trying to be our own image that we will remain in your image and that we will use our minds our intellect and our desires and our will and submit them to you and trust that you know what is truly good and what is truly evil God help us when evil hits really hard And we doubt. God, help us when evil looks really good. And we doubt. God, I pray you continue to grow in us a desire for your word, for what is truly good. And God, I pray that you open our eyes to see how your word is good. To see the promises coming true so that it will increase our faith that we can look back on our lives and again and again see how you directed us to what is good and true so that we will increasingly trust you more and more and may we build our lives upon your word may it become a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path We thank you that even in our stubbornness and hard-heartedness, that you do not abandon us, but you remain gracious. Thank you, God. And thank you for making the ultimate sacrifice for us. Help us be willing to respond in kind to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.